Baruch Hashem Yahweh. Are we excited to get back in the Word? I certainly am. I certainly am on the second day of Sukkot. So we were looking at yesterday, bind betwixt, between, between the places, bind betwixt. And yesterday I was talking about looking and moving past the Peshat, the plain sense of the text, but moving into allegory and metaphor, looking at the scriptures in an allegorical way, some of those Peshat, plain sense, textual references, applying allegory to it. Why? For the purpose to drive us deeper to find spiritual application in our lives. Of course, I gave you the trigger alert not to be freaked out by New Age hippies and how the faith, as it got exported out to the nations, got perverted into a lot of New Age mysticism. But when we take the spiritual principles in the Word and solidify them in the Word, that is a safe place to operate from. And with that, I started out by speaking about Yaakov, Jacob, and how Jacob began to build his spiritual house at Bethel. And how I related the 33 vertebral columns, how his house, Bethel, sat at the base of his spine, where all your carnal nature is. And the journey is to move up to Peniel, where Jacob wrestled with his carnal nature, wrestled with the Malak, the angel of Yahweh, and he finally reached Peniel, or Pineal. I was talking about how this is a growth to that non-hemispherical single eye. Let your eye be single. We were looking at allegory and metaphor with that. And then I spoke about the giant within, that we have to take captive the stranger within, the giant within, which is our sinful, carnal nature, by overcoming our five natural senses. And we looked through allegory and metaphor how David slew the giant within by overcoming the five natural senses, he slew Goliath and became enlightened. And of course, Goliath was struck with five stones in the pineal, right? Allegory and metaphor rooted in scripture. And then I even spoke about how Samson overcame the beast and then when he overcame the beast within, he was able to find the land flowing with sweet, milky honey. And of course, this is using allegory and metaphor. And I think I touched on, when I left off yesterday, the trigger alert, of course, the 33-degree masons and the trigger alert with the third eye and the Luciferic realm because there's a difference between struggling to overcome the carnal man and reaching Peniel, which is an internal struggle, or the occult method, 
the Masonic method is to use external forces as a quick trip to pineal the third eye, which is Luciferic and occult, and never to mix the two. The difference between being a Jacob who wrestles with the internal, wrestles with the Malak of Yahweh and becomes enlightened as Israel, you and I, or there's the seven sons of Sceva, the counterfeit, of course, dark light, dark matter. So, that's how I left yesterday. Let's dive into a allegory. Of course, I want to explain this allegorically. You've read it all before. This is the text about the curses and what a bunch of curses there are that came upon Israel when they did the sin of the golden calf. There were blessings that could have happened, but then they ended up cursed. And we find the text in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28, we're going to be reading from verse 40, looking at it as allegory and metaphor because we want to overcome the giant within. Now remember I spoke about the um, Moshiach, which means the anointing. So we're looking at that oil and we know that we cannot stand. And if you can stand still, stand. If you don't have a vertebrae that is working and functioning, you cannot stand. Part of that vertebral com column is the spinal oil, the spinal secretion from the base all the way up to pineal. And that is the oil of anointing that comes through the oil of anointing himself, Yahusha the special, special touch that has to happen for all of this to be able to make us transform. So, without further ado, because I like saying that for some reason, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 40. Now, I'll give you a prep because you're reading, hopefully you're already ahead of me and already reading through the text and you're starting to see the allegory jump right out to you within the text because this piece of text, when we look at it through metaphor and allegory, it is talking about what? That we cannot be limited to the physical. You cannot be limited to the physical. Oh my goodness, trigger alert. Does that mean Matthew believes that you shouldn't anoint one another with olive oil? Hey, I love anointing people with oil. I love being anointed with oil. But I also sometimes accidentally get anointed with oil by my children when we're having salad for dinner. That isn't what transforms my life. Yes, there's a physical application of anointing oil, and we're not going to limit that. That's the plain sense, the Peshat. But there is something more than physical going on in this text 
when we look at it through allegory and metaphor. You cannot be limited, the text says, to the physical. You cannot be limited to the physical, but you have to be able to access the spiritual. Because if you're limited to the physical, you're going to find yourself captive to the giant, the stranger within. Let's look and see. You shall have olive trees throughout all of your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil. This isn't limited to a physical experience. There's so much more going on here. You shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall cast their own fruit. For your olives shall cast their own fruit. You shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. Locusts shall consume all of your trees and the produce of your land. The stranger who is within... The giant within you, the stranger who is within, shall come upon you and shall pursue you and shall overtake you until when? Until you are destroyed. If you don't get the allegory and the metaphor, your carnal man, the stranger within you, he is going to overtake you. She is going to overtake you. She is going to overcome you. You are going to be taken captive because you're living in the physical planes, your lower earthly realm. You never left Bethel. You're a carnal, carnal, we could have said it back in the church. We've seen it all before. Carnal Christians. Carnal, spiritual people. It's an oxymoron, but how many people get stuck in the lower rungs? And we can read on and we see what? You shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. Locusts shall consume all of your trees and the produce of your land. Trees are people. Then the stranger who is within you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. This is talking about the climb of the vertebral column, the 33 journey between Bethel and Peniel. If you don't subdue the stranger within you, the stranger within you is going to have ascendancy over you. This is about taking the soul and the flesh into captivity. Because if you don't take the soul and the flesh into captivity, the soul will have ascendancy over the spiritual you. And that's how the default of the world is. You have to let the spiritual you take captivity of the soul and the soul thus take captivity of the flesh. Looking at this text with allegory and metaphor, you can see now how it begins to unravel. The stranger who is within you shall rise higher and higher above you if you live in the physical realm, and you shall become down lower and lower, the spiritual you. He shall lend to you 
but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you, you shall be the tail. Moreover, all of these curses, that means all means all, shall come upon you and pursue you. From the moment you get up, you're going to be pursued by the carnal man. The carnal man is going to want you to flick the television on. The carnal man is going to want you to leave your Bible on the stand. The carnal man is going to want you to go to the refrigerator before you go to your knees. The carnal man is going to pursue you from the moment you get up. You have to make stands in your life, erect your vertebrae column and say, no, I am going to my armchair, to my Bible, to my needs. And then from there, we'll talk about my gut, my belly, the orange juice, and my porridge. Or in my case, the toast and Marmite. And the PG tips that affects your hips. No, it actually doesn't, but it could if you overdo the sugar. Good night. Look at me. There was a time when I'd be able to read the Bible from this distance, and now I'm like this. What is going on? I'll be up here with readers next year. This is outrageous. Out blooming rageous. What happened? I was young and handsome, and now I'm all gray. My hair is not as thick as it once was, but I could be as bald as you. So, at least I have something on the gutter, Smith. Not much, but a few months. All right, let me get down here close. I need the King Jimmy massive size, right? Oh, look. But you're, how old are you? 29. The 21-year-old lady has got the King Jimmy with the big print. What's wrong with you? <laughs> all right. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed. Why? Because you did not obey that still, small voice of Yahweh, your Elohim, to keep his commandments and his statutes, which you commanded, he commanded you. And just in, in, just in case you don't believe that this should be read sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes as allegory and metaphor, Yahweh's making it plain for us in the next verse, this is a sign for you. This is a sign, and not only a sign, it's a wonder if you understand the spiritual ramifications of what we're doing here, because people are trees. People are trees. And it will affect your descendants when you master the soul and the flesh within you. So, that's my introduction today, looking at allegory and metaphor. But what I want to do today is travel back to Abraham. We're going to look at Hagar. We're going to look at our beginnings. 
because this is how we're going to learn how to draw close to Yahuwah as we are in this Malkizedic journey together. I think that's why Paul emphasized the journey. And it is a journey, isn't it? We have to journey back, though, don't we? Back to Babylon. Oh, heavens forbid, no. We journey back to Abraham. To journey back. In fact, when I used to go through the Torah portions every week, in Bereshit, Genesis chapter 12, the Torah portion on Abraham is called in the Hebrew, Lech Lecha. It means to journey back. And that's where it all begins. Because all of us, like Abraham, we had to make a decision to leave our father's house, which entailed smashing down some idols and crossing over from one soil to a better soil. And in that better soil, we become rooted and planted and we produce a better fruit, the oil of anointing the great, great harvest of these end days. And if you were to look at that Hebrew word, lech lecha, which means to journey back to Abraham in context, it's spelt alamed kof, alamed kof. And it means, and this is what's been hard for some of you. It wasn't so hard for me because I began this journey when I was 12 or 13 years old. I didn't know it then, but I've gone it alone for a long time. And for you to journey back to Abraham, lech lecha, what it means is you've got to go for yourself. You've got to go it alone. And that's hard especially when you live in a culture like we do today with so much connectivity. For you to disconnect from that and make a decision, I've got to go this alone. And when I do, I've got to count the cost. I don't know who's going to want to journey with me. And the people that I thought would stick around, well, they may not journey with you because they count the cost and it is too much for them. But you have counted the cost to go it alone. Some of you have been more blessed than others and you've got to journey with a loved one or loved ones. But some of you have paid a higher cost. That all depends, right? But when we journey like Abraham in the Malkizedek, we begin to look differently at where we live, don't we? The moment that I started to journey back to Abraham, you start to look differently at everything that you're surrounded by. It's no longer quite the same, is it? What you used to find acceptable, you now go, oh my goodness, I can't have this in my house. I can't have this in my work. I can't be associated with this on the weekends. It's a whole different, different identity when you look back to Abraham. You begin to awake. What do you begin to awake to? The land. You begin to wake to the descendants. And many of you became misguided like myself and you begin to become Zionists because you think, oh, it's the land, it's the land. And then you mistakenly believe that the Zionist state created in 1948 equates to biblical Zionism. And then it takes somebody maybe like me 
to come along and give you a good poke and offend you and you go, oh, well, hang on a minute, yes, there is a difference between national Zionism and the Luciferic realm and biblical Zionism that we read about. Very different indeed. One is exclusive, it is racial, and the other one is multicultural, inclusive, because it's Joseph's coat consisting of all 12 tribes. Very different, very different indeed. But with Abraham, we find a change, a shift in the biblical narrative. I love children. I have four children. But um, I do really need to be able to focus up here. It's very distracting. So can we um, uh, address the, the child that's making all the noise? I love children, so please don't get offended, pack your trash and leave the camp. That's not what I meant. It's just a lot for me to be able to try and get my thoughts together. I'd do it to my own children too, wouldn't I, honey? Okay. No offense. Okay, thank you, because I, I can barely think alone, let alone with a little nipper. All right. But with Abraham, we find that Yahweh is no longer dealing with mankind on a universal level. There's a shift in the biblical narrative. But he now deals with one man, Abraham himself. Whereas with Adam, it was universal. But now we get to Abraham, he deals with one man and his descendants. The narrative shifts to an intimate, intimate level where relationship deepens. You see that in Genesis 12. You see, Yahweh moves from this universal perspective of affecting mankind as a whole, and he moves from creation and Adam to now man. We deal with one man, his descendants, that then affects the nations. So instead of universal coming down to man, Yahweh shifts it, and now you have man, an individual, Abraham, then affecting the nations. It's a reversal. Do you see that? Intimacy and expansion rather than contraction. So, we're all here at Sukkot because at some point, all of us, woke up and were willing to count the cost and go, I'm willing to count the cost of going it alone with Yahuwah, right? Which means you left a corporate, expansive church system, which was a cultural system of identity. And you're like, you know what? I can't do it anymore. I'm willing to go it alone. I've counted the cost. We've all had to count that cost. Counting the cost always, listen, you want to write this down. I'm not one that says that often, but I think this is important because it impacted my life. Counting the cost brings a status change. And the people of Israel are all about getting as many status changes as possible. That's what the whole Torah is about. Somebody is Tamei. And then they have a status change, they become to whore. Somebody's unclean, they have a status change, they become clean, right? It's all about a status change. Women get to have a status change a lot more frequently than men. But the King Jimmy Bible makes it like a bad thing. Oh, the woman's unclean. No, the woman gets to have a status change. 
way more frequently than the man does. That's a blessing, because every time there's a status change, there's a blessing involved if you journey back with Yahuwah. Status changes are what we're all about. So this is what we find. When we count the cost, it's always going to bring a status change. And some, I may say, of you may be stuck. You may be stuck and want nothing to do with a status change. But you have to count the cost. You have to go it alone on the next stage of the journey with Yahuwah to get that status change. Otherwise you get stuck. Because you can be a Hagar or you can be a Hagar. And I'll explain the difference a little bit later. But it's all about taking personal responsibility for your walk and personal responsibility for your circumstances. And that's hard for some people. That's hard for some people. Prior to Abraham, all the dramas had involved evasion and abdication of responsibility. Think about it. That's the world that you and I live in. Nobody wants to step up to the plate. Nobody wants to take responsibility for their actions. They want to go around and do things, and then guess what? Just pretend like it never happened. Well, as you'll get to know me, you'll find that you've met a person that is intolerant of that. Intolerant. Because I grew up where when I did an action, there was a consequence. Because I had corporal punishment at boarding school and you didn't get away with anything. Every action has a consequence, a reaction, action, right? But today, we're seeming to journey back to before Abraham. Evasion and abdication of responsibility. Prior to Abraham, that was the way it was. Personal responsibility, evasion and abdication. Moral responsibility, evasion and abdication. Collective responsibility, evasion and abdication. And cultural responsibility, evasion and abdication. What do I mean? Adam denied personal responsibility. Cain denied moral responsibility. Noah, he failed abysmally to exercise collective responsibility. And Babel, come out of Babylon, people, Babel was a rejection of cultural responsibility. And then we get to Genesis chapter 12. When we meet Abraham, there's the turning point. There's the turning point where you finally start to take responsibility for your own faith. That's why you're all here. You started to take responsibility, and you counted the cost. And I'm not speaking at you because we're in this together. We are in this journey together. Look, so let's look at Noah, and let's look about Noah. This is the fella that failed to exercise 
collective responsibility. And we have to be aware of the days that we live in because will we be like Noah? I pray not and fail to exercise our collective inner ascent. We have a responsibility to ascend spiritually or are we going to evade that responsibility? Are we going to abdicate that responsibility and just let the world program us to be the carnal man and woman that the world is programming us to be? Are you going to evade that responsibility? Are you going to abdicate that responsibility? I'm certainly not. I don't think we've got anyone near a hundred in here. But it took Noah, allegorically, nearly a hundred years to build his ark. We have to build our ark. Let us pray it doesn't take as long as Noah did. So now let's look at us building our ark. Let's look at the ark in metaphor and allegory, okay? Because resting at the base of that ladder, what do we find resting at the base of Jacob's ladder? I spoke about yesterday. Now we're going to use the ark as an allegory, a metaphor. We're going to build our ark. Let's pray it doesn't take us a hundred years like Noah, because we are going to not flee from responsibility. Resting at the base of your ark is the carnal, natural man. He is unclean. He's two by two, right? The animals went in unclean at the base of the spine where all your carnal appetites are. That's your animal nature of uncleanness, unholiness. The moral enmity state is where you have to begin to build your ark. That rests, if we look at the ladder metaphor, that rests on the earth, the base of the spine, the 33 vertebral columns. We can connect that back to Bethel. Is everyone tracking with me on this? That's the two-by-two two animal nature. Then we begin to build our ark. It's a spiritual ark. And the goal of your ark and my ark is that our ark would become clean and holy and pure and undefiled. That is a seven by seven. There was Noah and seven that went into the ark and the animals went in by seven that were clean or sevens. It could be 14 and a living sacrifice. One for sacrifice, depending on your translation. The tame, the clean, the tahor, are sevens. Could be just seven or it could be 14 plus one for sacrifice, depending on your translation. But either way it works, because there was Noah plus seven in the ark. This is about building our spiritual ark. We have to be a clean and undefiled vessel. There's the allegory and metaphor just right there, because I'm jumping off of the fact that Noah failed to exercise collective responsibility. By you showing up at the Feast of Yahuwah, you get a status change because you are showing together. What are you showing? Collective responsibility. 
You could be in Babel right now, but you've chosen collectively to be here. It's cost you financially. You've had to count the cost on your journey here. Does that make sense? Got some strange looks out there. What is he going on about? Let's look at Adam. Adam was exiled from Eden against his will because he was disobedient. Yet we find Abraham accepts this personal responsibility and he undergoes this kind of voluntary self-exile, doesn't he? That's my story, and I know it's some of yours. You're nodding. It's a voluntary self-exile because of his belief in the divine commands of Yahuwah. You kind of have a voluntary self-exile. You did it to yourselves because of your obedience to Yahuwah, right? You don't get to sing around the mulberry bush. You don't get to kiss under the mistletoe, right? Voluntary self-exile. Cain. He refused to be his brother's keeper. Yet we meet the friend of Yahuwah. Don't, don't you want to be called? What a testimony. When you kneel before the King of Kings. You are my friend. Here is a friend of Yahuwah. That's what I want to say to the world. Who are you? I'm a friend of Yahuwah. Abraham was a friend of Yahuwah. And unlike Cain, who what? Refused. He just refused to be his brother's keeper. We've got Abraham. And he's like, I've got to go rescue Lot. You see the difference? The friend of Yahuwah goes and rescues his brother. That's something that's been hard for me because I'm such a stoic person at times. But I'm learning in ministry that it is, like we said last night, this is the ministry of second opportunities. Right? But there's a, there's, a, there's a manner and form to how we must proceed to get to spiritual forgiveness. But you've still got to put some things in place. Confession, repentance. It's going to cost you. It's going to be restitution. So you can't just sweep things under the rug and just walk back in. Because we all have to do things decently and order. And we have to work for the kingdom together. Because it is a physical world that we live, but we want to get to the spiritual healing of us all. But we can see the distinction and the difference right there between Cain and Abraham, the friend of Yahuwah. And look at the contrast between Noah and Abraham. Because Abraham prayed for the inhabitants of Sodom. But not Noah. He just was like, I'm building my ark, and guess what? <laughs> we're going to shut that door, and we're going to sail on out of here. Who cares what happens to him? We don't know if he thought, but I imagine, because that's what the carnal me would have been like. Right? As long as we're all safe, right? Got the missus? Yep, you got your missus? All right, we got some beef. Got the burgers on board? Let's go. Right? 
Unlike the builders of Babel, Abraham understood the importance of establishing a culture of responsibility. And that culture is a Hebrew culture, a crossed-over culture. That's what these feasts are all about, taking cultural responsibility as individuals, taking cultural responsibility as a ministry and establishing a culture of responsibility. It's a Hebrew biblical culture. And it puts us at odds with Sodom, doesn't it? It puts us at odds with Sodom. It's the Roman month of October. Many of you have young children. You live in neighborhoods. What are you going to do when it comes to the 31st of October? What are you going to talk to your children about? How are you going to interact with your local community on your street? Do you want to put them off? Or do you want to be like Abraham? and take responsibility without compromise. How do we navigate all of that? Babel was a rejection of cultural responsibility, yet we're supposed to come out of Babylon. So how would I deal, or how have I dealt with Halloween and having young children? Is I set boundary stones in my house markers of what is acceptable and what's not. And as for me and my house, we've set the boundary stones that we'll only do things in a Hebrew biblical culture. Then those that are outside that don't know any better, instead of me pointing fingers at them, what I do is just turn it into my testimony because they're all, rah, 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 oh, are you going to come trick-or-treating? And I go, you know what? I was reading the other year about the origins of the jack-o'-lantern, and I love my children. And did you know that they would boil the kids and extract the fat of the little, and you'll just see the look on their face, and, and, and it becomes your personal testimony, and you're not telling them to change their mind, but you start to kind of show your journey of light and then they'll eat, they they could be like oh my goodness and if they're primed then that could be the beginning of them looking into it or they'll be like oh yeah we won't see them for a couple of weeks because they're the hebrew cultural family yes you've got to make your hebrew culture count with your children and we are at odds with Babylon. But that doesn't mean we beat Babylon with a brick. We share our testimony to Babylon. And if Babylon is awakening, then she'll go and do her due diligence like you and I did too. Biblical culture is our identity when we journey back to Abraham. That is what we talk about when it comes to these hard seasons in the Roman months that are approaching. Because when you look back, the journey back to Abraham is always going to lead you to caring about other people. Unlike the violence that was at the base of Cain's spine. He never ascended, did he? And when you build a, a high place, 
What is that? Carnal in nature, when you find those high places in your life. But for Abraham, the divine command is in fact life and life itself. With Abraham, we have this new faith. It's totally different from Genesis 12 onwards. It's birthed, it's born. And we find with Abraham the inception of the Malkitzedic covenant, which is transformative. It's supernatural. It's a faith with responsibility. No longer abdicating responsibility. You don't abdicate responsibility that somebody else is raising your children. You journey back to the Torah and you realize it's always been the responsibility of mum and dad to raise the children. As they walk by the way, as they sit in the house and as they lie down and rise up. And it is a cost that mothers most probably pay the steepest. So we pray for our wives and the mothers of homeschooling children because they find themselves more isolated, more challenged, and more alone than Abraham even did. At odds with the culture, at odds with the world. But that is a cost that has to be counted. That's the Hebrew culture. We're all part of that. And I think we see the difference with our children, don't we? It's amazing. It's amazing. Even with the grown-up children like Georgie and Emma, who were homeschooled, beautiful. Georgie. I'm just betting with him. <laughs> Trying to get him to blush. He's like, yes, you're right. Yes, bring it on. Yes, yes, bring it on. But we do. We have a diverse spectrum of homeschooled children that are 22 and 4 and 1, right? To little, little children in first grade. But the fruits of the same. A Hebrew culture that's born forth fruit. And Sukkot is great because it's the time to see all the fruit. It's the time to leave your land. It's the time to leave your homeland for a while to leave the social forces behind. Leave Instagram and social media forces and Facebook. Leave all that behind. Leave that cultural identity behind. Leave that class system behind. That's exactly what Abraham did. Leave the circumstances of your birth behind. Leave your innate instincts that dwell at the lower base of your carnal man behind. All those carnal drives, all those appetites, even that genetic determination where you go, oh, well, this is just the way I was born. Right? No. You leave that behind. You can journey on past that. Don't let that limit you. That is, puts you at variance with the Babylonian culture, where it says your genetic determination is what determines your future. No, it doesn't. You can be like Abraham and leave it all behind. 
Because unlike the Dalai Lama, I believe, I told you I wasn't a New Age mystic. Unlike the Dalai Lama who believes that you are born pure and perfect, yet you learn sin. I believe the inspired word of Yahuwah that you are born rotten sinners. We just saw one wheeled out in a pram. A rotten sinner that then learns righteous behavior. But don't tell me that little two-year-old dribbling and throwing up in the corner is like, oh, what a pure angelic, no, what a pure, what a pure angelic monster that needs some righteous instruction. Or do I have anybody that disagreed apart from the parent that just left with the little monster? But no, I mean, he'll attack me later. He's there, he's back! But you know that I'm being facetious. Come on! You should have seen my children when they were at that age, right? Oh my goodness, I have four of them. Blessed, blessed, thank you, exactly. But all that to say this, we've got to leave our father's house. We've got to leave our childhood influence. We've got to lead our, leave our childhood traumas behind, all those relationships and rivalries. We've got to leave them behind. Because children of Abraham, lech lecha, they journey back. And ultimately, it's a journey back to yourself, where you take responsibility to then overcome your sinful natural self and you climb from Bethel to Peniel. Travel. Travel for your own benefit. That's the journey. Travel for your own good. Give up your past. And that's hard for people, isn't it? It's hard for me. Give up your past so that you can have a future. A future with your family. And it seems like a sacrifice. But in the long run, it's not. Because when we finally appear before Yahushua, he's not, he's not going to ask us, well, why weren't you like Moshe? Why weren't you like Jeremiah? Why weren't you like Mary Magdalene? He's not going to ask you any of that. He's going to ask you, why weren't you like the self that I created you to be, all that you could be, ascending from the carnal natural man to your spiritual self. He's not going to ask you why you weren't like Moses, why you weren't like Sarah. He's going to say, why weren't you like the spiritual self I created you to be? Because you were stuck in the lower carnal rungs and you never journey back to your true self. That's the life of Abraham. You don't hold back. You don't let others hold you back either. And you don't diminish your spiritual self to accommodate others' comfort. That's hard for a lot of you, especially in this American culture. It's not that hard for me. Because in England, we don't care a lot about that stuff. It's called the stiff upper lip, or he's kind of 
obtuse. But in America, my wife drives me nuts with one thing. And she's sitting right there. One thing. She tips for bad service. <laughs> Don't diminish your spiritual self to accommodate others' comfort. I was raised that you only tip 10% if you have a phenomenal experience. And that if you don't have a phenomenal experience, you don't tip so they know they did a lousy job. Because it's not my job to supplement your wages because your boss is a crook. But in America, somehow, your boss, the restaurateur, is a crook that is paying you below what you should be paid, and the rest of us who want to come in for a bit of grub have to supplement your wages so your boss can get off scot-free. Babylon! So that's the only problem I have with my wife. Apart from that, she's journeyed back a lot further than I have and become the Sarah, and I want to be the Abraham to meet her. So there you go. She is. She is generous. That's very true. But don't diminish your full spiritual self to accommodate others' comfort. Halloween, Christmas, Easter. Don't diminish your full spiritual self. Oh, I mean, I have literally had to slap myself before when I've been like not thinking in the grocery line and somebody said, Happy holidays. I'm like, oh, thank you. And I'm like, wait, no. I, I said thank you. Right? They catch you off guard. And then I'm like, okay, that's right. That's right. It's December 22nd, of course. Gear up. Okay, gear up. Gear up. Right? They start chasing you out of places with tinkle bells and everything. <laughs> But you have to, you have to be prepared. Don't lower yourself to accommodate the pagan comforts of others. That's part of being part of Abraham. Our own spiritual journey is mirrored in Abraham's life, in his descendants' life. And that's why we're looking at Jacob. Because he ascended from his base rung with Esau to the highest state of spirituality. In Genesis, Bereshit, Genesis chapter 32, of course, we looked yesterday at Peniel. Peniel, of course, was the name that Jacob gave the place where the wrestling match happened. And it is a struggle. But that's not what's important. What's really important is that Peniel is meant to be a real place inside you. A real place inside me. And I'm not talking New Age mysticism. It's the special place that sits in the center of our brain that doesn't get swayed to the left, it doesn't get swayed to the right, it is non-hemispherical, it stands strong. That's conviction, that's creed, and it comes by the holy anointing, and you grow in that maturity because you overcome your carnal self, and you're no longer swayed by the hemispheres. 
Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore on thine eye be single or non-hemispherical, because you have wrestled with Elohim and prevailed, journeyed back to Abraham and realized you're going to cross over and become Israel. That's the climbing of Jacob's ladder. And then what happens when that revelation happens to you? Your whole body becomes full of light. Right? Your whole body becomes full of light. Now, allegorically, Yahushua is not talking about the non-hemispherical eye being like the third eye that we see in the Masonic wicked culture. No, he's talking about us growing just like Jacob grew from Bethel to Peniel. And you have to be able to see the world differently. He's talking about the non-hemispherical vision where you don't get swayed to the left, you don't get tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, how it's spoken of in the New Testament. This is the single eye because you are now focused on your journey back. That's powerful. That's conviction. That's creed. You're full of light because you're representing an extraordinary spiritual change in your life. And if you... The old you could look at you now. The old you would call you a heretic and beat you up, right? The old you that was sitting back in the pews would scare, would be scared of the new you, right? See, because it is a spiritual force to be reckoned with. You've got a new transcendence of consciousness. You've, you're on a different physical plane. Because you're merging with Yahuwah on a spiritual plane. And it has affected your body physically. You most probably look different. And I'm not just talking the aging process. I'm talking the light that shines out of your eyes. And in Genesis chapter 32 verse 24, Jacob saw Elohim panaim el panaim face to face. And remember the statement is made in conjunction with the naming of the wrestling match location which is pineal or peniel, the light, the pineal associated with Elohim's face. Allegory and metaphor. In other words, it's symbolic of experiencing the light of Yahuwah beyond the physical plane of the five senses. Beyond the physical plane of the five senses. And somehow, the physical, physical pineal gland itself is a doorway of sorts to a higher reality when it's exercised through struggling with Yahuwah. And he rose up that night, Genesis 32, verse 22. And he took his two wives and his two servant maids. You can't tell me that he wasn't in the lower rungs. I mean, one wife wasn't enough. I mean, come on, right? He was in the lower rungs. Not only in that realm, we've got the, the ex-Mormon ladies over there going, Oh, yeah. <laughs> I saw it. I caught it. Trigger, trigger, trigger. Trigger alert. Like, oh, yes, yes, yes. I remember those doctrines. Yes, yes, yes. Fresh off the boat from Utah. 
See, I, I don't just tease the gentleman with the young child. I tease the ex-Mormon crew as well. Had a go at the Filipinos yesterday. I mean, I'm just like politically incorrect in every aspect possible. And he rose up in the night and he took his slew of wives or two wives and his two servant maids and his slew of children, 11 of them in fact, and he crossed over the ford of Jabok. Jabok, it means to empty. Empty your carnal self, right? We have to cross over Jabok before we can begin the true wrestling match. Jabok, spelled Yod Bet Kuf. It's really Yabok. Because there's no J. The letter J was invented in, right? How many of you have beat your neighbor up with that one? Yes! I know you have, Danan. The letter J was invented in 1532. Have you never heard of Yugoslavia? <laughs> now I'm showing my age, right? Because there is no blooming Yugoslavia. All right, anyway. All right, we know what I'm talking about with the letter J beating people up, of course. Well, Yabok, Yod Bet Kuv. Jacob had to empty himself before he could encounter the supernatural. Yabok, it means to empty oneself, to empty oneself. And we can see not only by his Mormon wives that he was in the carnal nature, but he also was a desperate man that was very carnal. First, Jacob was desperate and lost in that carnality, like I was and like you were. Desperate and lost in your carnality. Second, look at the text. Jacob wasn't only desperate and lost in his carnality, but he found himself alone. There is nothing more miserable than tasting so many fruits in an orchard and feeling gutted and bitter and alone. That you've gorged yourself and you are sick to your stomach. It would have better off to have ate nothing. Because once you've tasted of that fruit, right? allegory and metaphor. You understand what I'm talking about. I don't need to spell it out to you. But Jacob was desperate and alone. Verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. And there, once he emptied himself of his carnality, realized that he was all alone. Then, that's when he begins the building process of overcoming the carnal carnal man, and he wrestled with the Malak until the breaking of the day. And this is where we all start, alone and carnal. We see the necessity of going to our prayer closet. We see the necessity of repentance, of getting in touch with Yahuwah. 
in touch with a spiritual part of you that you have had in subjection to the carnal part of you. And you decide, I want to raise the spiritual me and subdue the carnal me through prayer and crying out to your Creator for help. That's where we all have started. And when, verse 25, the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So what is this talking about? Allegory and metaphor. Jacob's lower nature is struck down. His carnal man is injured. It is afflicted. It is damaged. Good. Jacob then is able to dislocate from his worldly desires. And he finally comes to see his Savior. You have to dislocate from your carnal self, your base level, to be able to walk this walk and journey back to Abraham. You have got to dislocate from your carnal self. And guess what? Your walk will never be the same. And the world will look at you as an injured parasite. Well, why doesn't this man sleep around anymore? What's wrong with him? Is he impotent? What, what, what's wrong with him? That's not normal. Why isn't he... He used to sleep around. Why doesn't he now? What's wrong with him? Well, what's wrong with that woman? Why, why doesn't she do that anymore? Why isn't she all like hanging her boobs out and doing this anymore? Why? Why, why, why is she all modest? What's wrong with her? Maybe that's too graphic talk for you, but we need to have these conversations. Right? Why? Because finally you dislocate from that and you say, no, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm going to dislocate from my carnal self. I'm going to dislocate from trying to entice vice. I'm dislocated from that worldview. And I don't care if somebody thinks I'm impotent because I am not impotent spiritually anymore. And that is more important than any carnal ordinance of man that makes me an enemy of Yahuwah because I'm not subject to the moral code of Yahuwah, which is the book of the covenant reality in which we do live. Jacob's lower nature is struck. He dislocates from his worldly desires and finally he comes to see his Savior. Remember earlier in verse 5 of this very text how Jacob thought all of his worldly possessions could save him and give him a good life. I have oxen. I've got donkeys and flocks and male servants and I've got lots of wives from Utah. <laughs> And he took presents to his brother Esau. I'm going to have to do some serious damage control. <laughs> Ladies, we'll visit afterwards. Brother, we'll visit in the back. Anybody else? The Filipinos, we're going to definitely have to get with those together later on tonight. Anybody else? Anybody? 
Stick your hand up if you have not thus been offended. And I will make sure. i got 10 more minutes to offend you. Definitely going to have to visit with the wife. We're going to have some damage control there. Anywhere else? Anyone? Anyone? All right. Line up. <laughs> yeah. George, George, you're going to have to visit the lie days, crying out loud. Dad's going to be beating me with a gutter in, in joke. All right. I have oxen. I've got donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants from Utah. <laughs> and, he, and, he took, and he took presents for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats and 200 ewes and 20 rams and 30 milking camels. Get your milking camels out of here. And calves and fourth blooming out. He was full of bull. Ten bulls, 20 female donkeys. I mean, talk about worldly possessions. Man. He had to recognize that Yahweh was moving through his life. And Jacob comes to this point that recognizing Yahweh through moving out of his worldly possessions. He's like, I have got to move out of my worldly possessions, my worldly desires. I need to ascend through prayer. I need to see that the preferred method of attaching to Yahuwah isn't through the carnal realms that the world would have me stuck in, but it is to ascend and move to Peniel and have the experience through the struggles. Prayer is key. And in our day, especially, it is mindfulness, isn't it? My mind is, ping, oh yes, and off I go. No, I have got to be mindful of what I'm doing. Ping, oh, there's another alert. Oh, right, off I go. No. How many subscriptions have we got of YouTube? How many Bible things can we listen to on the, on, on, on the YouTube, right? I get a ping all the time. Oh, my favorite Bible commenter just put a new one out. Right? But it's great, you know, especially if it's Torah to the tribes. But otherwise, no. <laughs> but we are inundated, aren't we? We have to be single-minded. How about that email notification? Ping! Text notification. Ping! And I'm like, what was I doing? It was really important. Oh, I was going to the loo. That's right. Yes. No, I mean, seriously. Single-mindedness in our day and age is so important. Prayer and mindfulness is the key because it has a profound effect on consciousness. Yahushua said that the kingdom no, does not come by observation, seeing with the physical eyes, but the kingdom of Yahuwah, it has to be realized from within. Just like Jacob, we have to travel along the hard road. We journey back to Abraham, but in the end, Jacob finally had this Peniel experience, and that is what made him Israel. Jacob, he was a carnal man, but Israel is the spiritual all that you can be. The crossed over one. 
the leaving Babylon one, the one that will not compromise his or her faith to accommodate Babylon's comfort. That puts you at variance with the world. It puts you at variance with the culture, but you have to count the cost to journey back and begin the life of ascension that we're all doing. This is why Paul tells us that as an Israelite, it has nothing to do with the bloodline, but it is a spiritual destination because a spiritual Israelite is one who has had the Peniel experience, the awakening and the struggle and encountered the oil of anointing, which is Yahushua himself. Think about Paul's walk on the road to Damascus. He saw a what? A bright light. He was blinded. His carnal five senses were rendered mute and he had an enlightenment, an awakening of his non-hemispherical eye, if you will. What a bright light he saw on the road to Damascus. It is an allegory, a metaphor in that application. So I believe that this Peniel experience that I'm trying to communicate through allegory and letter, metaphor, it has to be found alone in Yahushua. We have to be born again. Because the counterfeit is an external force which I liken unto the seven sons of Sceva. It is a counterfeit that is offered by Eastern religions and it fails on every, every point. Jacob didn't wrestle with Brahma. Jacob didn't wrestle with Vishnu and Skiva, but you better watch out for the seven sons of Skiva. And now I've got the Filipinos going, yes, because you know what I'm talking about, because it's infiltrated your culture, right? But you have what? Journeyed and crossed over, and you're no longer Filipinos, but Israelites. And I'm no longer subject to the queen's crown, but subject to the king of kings, right? Because I've crossed over. So we don't wrestle with the pagan deities. We crush them because of the strength that Yahweh has given us. Yahweh's call to Abraham and his descendants is the same spiritual calling to, Yah to us. Yahweh's voice calls to every generation and the voice calls, please, will you leave? Some of you, men, I know I've got some ex-soldiers in here too. Yeah. But there was a time where you had to make a decision and go, I'm going to leave my patriotism behind. Patriotism, right? Because you started to see that that's all part of the globalist society and there's even a higher calling for you than patriotism. You have to leave those nationalistic feelings behind. You have to leave the customs, the feelings of your family. You have to flee from your flesh, flee from your soul, and you have to flee to the source of your higher spiritual self. That's the Peniel Bethel to Peniel calling. 
So Abraham is just like you and I, and that's why Paul says and points back to him. He was seeking meaning in the world, and that's what we're doing. We're just trying to seek meaning here as we're pilgrims in this world. And we are the first Hebrews of our generation that have crossed over. And that is what's amazing. And we've encountered Zedek, which gives us the strength to endure where maybe good men like Herbert Armstrong and others before were not able to endure because of not meeting Zedek and the full understanding of the Book of the Covenant and the Book of the Law, even though Herbert Armstrong did bring that up, correct, in his teachings. And you, you knew him personally, and he had shared that with you. So now, we're in this new place, where many people are starting to understand the importance of the Zedek anointing. But we cannot be too affected by this world that we live in. We cannot be too affected by our daily duties. We have to break with the world to have the spirit break, which will lead to the soul overtake. And that's what we want. I want the spirit break so that the spirit can overtake my soul. The spirit break will give you the soul overtake. And the only way to get back on course is taking time away from the community with the community of the saints. And that is what Sukkot is all about. And I'll finish up with Isaiah 53, verse 12. I love this. Therefore I, therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he has been numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So that's where we need to be. We need to let our old corn husks fall to the ground and die. We need to die to ourselves so that we can bring forth that spiritual fruit. That's the allegory and metaphors. The soul must be brought down so the spirit can climb to Peniel. Allegory and metaphor is a powerful tool when we're trying to overcome the natural base elements of our carnality. And Yahweh has equipped us to do that. Amen? Amen. Questions, comments, blessings. Blessings. Any more announcement? T squared? No. All right, we have dinner at um, 5.30. And then we'll have Fireside at 7.30. And um, take a ticket if you want to come up and take issue with anything that I said, being rude and disgraceful. Tickets. Tickets. Oh, George.